Welcome to the Ridge Community Church Podcast. At the end of this episode, please take a moment to hit the subscribe button and find us online at theridgecc.com. At our website, you can catch up with everything that's happening at The Ridge, watch previous messages, and learn more about who we are. If you want to watch services live, you can catch them every Sunday via our online community at live.theridgecc.com. We hope this message inspires you to take the next step in your faith journey. Enjoy. Well, hey, it's great to be with everybody, uh, no matter where you're joining us from. And when I say everybody, we've got people joining us from Oak Creek and uh, online and obviously right here uh, in Greenfield. Hey, before I jump in, um, I just want to just kind of give you uh, just some, some perspective and some insight into just the emotional week uh, that we all experienced uh, this past week, obviously, with just the, the horrific tragedy in our community. And uh, what was interesting is, is that when, uh, when we heard about it uh, here, we were, uh, we were like, okay, how do we serve and care for uh, the people that, uh, that we know attend here, and then how do we, uh, th- that work there, and then uh, how can we care for uh, just, just the team and the staff, the first responders, uh, just everybody involved, what can we do our part? And uh, then at the same time, we came up with this idea to have a prayer vigil here service, uh, and so to take our normal Thursday night and to change that. And so we started all this set off a string of events, and then as a result, uh, Thursday rolls around, and so we're kind of getting ready. Well, this set off just a media circus around here, and uh, I mean, it was an all-day deal, and we were not expecting it. And, um, and so, I mean, there was so much so that uh, uh, even a, a, you know, a, a national network came here and uh, was doing things, and it just happened all day. And so then at the same time, we're going, man, how do we, how do we love and serve our community that's hurting, you know? And uh, <laughs> so just a bunch of balls were going on and, and juggling at the same time. And then uh, we had the Thursday night service here, and what was really cool about that, well, that whole thing was uh, we didn't know what to expect from that. And we just knew that we wanted to be ready to, uh, to love and care for our community that was so hurting, because this is what we do. It's what we're called to do. And uh, what was great is we were like, okay, um, uh, we need to get about 100 people here to just uh, just serve people as they're coming in and all that stuff. And what was great, on the fly, last minute, uh, from Oak Creek and from, and from here, we, we got 100 people like that. It was like people were taking off of work. They were just doing all sorts of things. They were donating stuff. And, food, and all of a sudden, you just, it was just like that. And it was just incredible. And then we're hearing stories of, of, of small groups, and uh, they are caring for uh, victims of, uh, uh, of this tragedy, and they're caring for first responders, and they're donating food to uh, police departments and just different things like that. It's just set off this whole cycle of events, and uh, why, why do I tell you all that? I tell you that because uh, throughout the years of, of our very young church, uh, challenges have, have come our way, obstacles have come our way, and I can't think of a time where you haven't risen to the challenge. And uh, this was one of those that, uh, you know, you're not really prepared for. Uh, but once again, you guys just unbelievable in your love and care for the city. And, you know, you can talk about it and we can talk about, well, we love our city and all that stuff. But you, you know when you do, when something like this happens, and then the actions back up your words or at least equal your words. And uh, you guys did that. And I tell you that because I, I just step back and go, I am so proud of you and uh, how you handle things, how you are handling things, how you're loving and caring for people in this process. Um, I, I hope that as this kind of moves forward, because eventually national stuff and everything's going to move on, but the reality is, is that the people that have been impacted, they will not move on. 
And so the time that we can really love and care for, for our community, for them, is, is actually, uh, I, I said this on Thursday night, you give it about a week, and then that, that, that need is really going to exist at even a greater level. And so I want to encourage you to keep doing it, uh, keep caring for, keep serving, keep giving uh, to what is going on around here, because uh, when darkness hits, and it's going to hit, and it'll continue to hit, because we live in a broken, dark world, uh, God has invited us to be light into a great community that we live in. And so, uh, like I said, just as a, as a, I, I'll say this, as a proud dad uh, to you guys, nice job. And keep doing what you're doing because it's our calling. And it's a fabulous calling that we get to be a part of. So that's enough of that sermon. I got another sermon I got to talk about uh, because we are beginning a new series called Signs. And uh, I was reading this article that talked about uh, just the most iconic signs in the world. And so I wanted to share with you the top five uh, most popular signs in the entire world. I would bet most of you know uh, these signs. Here's the first one, Route 66, which actually came at number five. We see that all over the country, you know. Uh, here's the fourth one, uh, the London Underground sign, which this was an interesting one for me. I had never heard this, of the this sign before. And so I floated this by a couple of people. I'm like, have you ever heard this? They're like, yeah, do you live in a cave, man? I mean, how did you not have heard of this one before? I guess, you know, I live in a cave, all right? Uh, here's the third one. The third one, the Radio City Music Hall sign in New York. How many have seen this sign? How many have been out there to see this sign? Yeah, that's right. It's a great sign. Here's number two. Fabulous Las Vegas sign. Wow, Las Vegas is a popular place around here, I guess. Fabulous, that's great. Okay, now before we put up number one, anyone want to guess who number one is? Some of you are at the first service, all right? It's the, it's the Hollywood sign, and the Hollywood sign, actually, this was, actually, this was originally an advertisement for a subdivision called Hollywood Land, and so that's where that actually came from. Now, here, here's the thing about signs. Uh, a, a sign's job is not to actually point to the sign. I mean, a sign's job is to point to something, but it's to point to something else. Uh, in fact, if, if a sign does its job, it's to point to something bigger than the sign, that a sign doesn't exist for itself. Now, as I said, we're starting this series called, series called Signs, and what we're going to do is we're going to talk specifically about six signs that Jesus did. Now, let me tell you why this is important. Two of the most misunderstood words in all of Christianity are these words right here, believe and faith. Now, just kind of setting aside the religious aspect, setting aside the Christianity aspect for a minute, uh, we all know what these words mean at home and at work. We all know what these words mean in almost every area of, of culture. But for some reason, when we get into a setting like this, the same criteria we use in our everyday life doesn't apply here. Now, let me tell you what I mean, what I mean by that. In the real world, we believe based on evidence. In other words, we believe or we don't believe based on what we see and hear and the credibility of the sources uh, that we read and, uh, and that we look at. However, when it comes to a setting like this, we don't talk about things like evidence and credibility of sources and things like that. Now, this is why some of you growing up, or maybe not even growing up, maybe just recently, some of you were told, all right, you just have to have faith, or you just have to believe, or maybe this one. You need to have more faith, which is interesting. That is, that's probably not something that we'd ever say in our everyday life because if someone told us that, we'd be like, well, that doesn't make a whole lot of sense. Now, the reason why these words are, are so misunderstood is because faith and belief are often separated from reason because reason equals evidence. 
And see, we're in church, you know, and we're talking about God, and we're talking about spiritual things and things like that. And so, you know, we don't want to talk about reason or evidence or things like that. You know, instead, I, I, here, here's what I think that we do. I think we take faith and belief, and we confuse it with this idea right here, hope, hope. And think about what hope is. It's like, well, I hope he's going to come home today. Did he come home yesterday? No, but I hope he's going to come home today. And hope uh, is important, and hope is a good thing, and hope is a big part of Christianity, but hope is different from and very different from faith and belief. And so what we want to do throughout this series is we're going to discover that when it comes to this whole idea of faith and belief, that, that in a setting like this, it doesn't have to be in a separate category, so to speak. And when we talk faith and belief in a setting like this, it doesn't have to be separated from reason. And so this is going to be good news for some of you. Because some of you right now are following Jesus, and this is going to free you from ideas about faith that are actually undermining your faith. And some, someone has said this to you. They said, hey, listen, you need to have more faith. And you're like, okay, I want to, but man, how do I do that? You know, do I wave a magic wand, you know? Do I pray a certain prayer, you know? Is there a formula there that I, that I can do? And you just don't know how to do it. Listen, this is actually going to deepen your faith. Now, others of you, you're here, and you wouldn't call yourself a church person or a religious person. You know, this is going to free you to explore faith using the same filter that you use in your everyday life. Now, the way that we're going to do this is that we're going to look at six signs that are found, that Jesus did, that are found in the New Testament book of John. Now, John actually has seven signs, uh, but the reason we can't do seven is because on the, on, on the seventh week, we have this little small detail called Easter that, you know, we have to do. And so uh, we're going to cover six of them. And like I said, they're all found in the book of John. Now, just a little background about John. John was one of the 12 disciples of, of Jesus. He actually uh, became the closest friend to Jesus. And uh, most scholars believe that John was the last uh, uh, disciple to live. And so some people who, who were around John, some people who were part of the church at that time, they went to John and they said, hey, listen, John, you're the last guy standing. And so you were around Jesus. You, we need to get this down. You need to document this stuff. And so what John did is he documented all this stuff. And uh, this document became known as the book of John or the gospel of John, literally the good news from John. And John's purpose in writing this wasn't to tell us what happened. John's purpose in telling us this was to tell us why it happened and why he wants us to know that it happened. In fact, what I want to do is I, I want to fast forward uh, to the end of John's book where he gives us the purpose statement, which is kind of interesting. If you're going to write something, you mostly write the purpose up front. You know, here's why I'm doing this and all that stuff. But John actually puts it in at the end. So we're going to look at this purpose statement and then we're going to rewind things, go to the beginning, and then we're going to journey with John as he journeyed with Jesus. And so here's what John says uh, at the end. He said, well, Jesus performed many other, and there's our word, signs. And so we don't know how many, many is, but John, for some reason, just only includes these seven. And that word signs there, that's going to drive our entire series that, in the, that he did in the presence of his disciples. And so these weren't signs that were done in secret. They were done in public. And John wants to know that, hey, we saw these things. We were actually there. And he says, which are not recorded in this book. Now, the book he's talking about is not the Bible because there wasn't a Bible at this time. The book that he's talking about is actually the book that he's writing. And then he says this. But these are written, that purpose, right here. Here's why they're written, that you may believe. And so John's like, I'm not just content with telling you, oh, just have faith, or you just should believe. John's like, hey, listen, uh, I want you uh, to, to journey with me and my experience with Jesus. 
And my hope is, is that you will experience through my experience that Jesus is who he claimed to be. And then John tells us who he claimed to be, that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Jews believe that God would someday send a chosen one on their behalf. But then he adds this, the Son of God. In other words, that Jesus wasn't just the Messiah, he was divine, that he was God in a body, or as we like to say here, God in a bod. He's the Son of God, and that by believing, and we're going to talk about that in a little bit, that you may have life in his name, that this whole believing thing isn't just something that happens up here, that it happens here as well. And when he talks about life, that he says, hey, listen, through this, and through this journey, and through following Jesus, that you experience a new, a different kind of life. Literally, life with the divine. And so as we're going to see is that John begins building this case as to why we should believe uh, Jesus who is who he said he's going to be, and who he said he is. And he uses a sequence, a certain sequence that led him to this point, that actually got him to this point. And he's going to, he's going to lay out the sequence throughout his book. And here, here's why John uh, eventually believed why, why Jesus is who he said he was. And it wasn't because of faith. John's going to tell us it's because of what they saw and what they heard. And so John's like, hey, listen, if this sequence convinced me, I think, and my hope is, it's going to convince you as well. And so John organizes his entire book around these seven signs. Now, what's interesting is that John intentionally uses the word signs. He doesn't use the word miracles. Now, the supernatural uh, acts of Jesus that, that most of us have heard of or uh, we know of, you know, they weren't just some random acts of kindness where Jesus was going, okay, I think I just want to do that today and do that over there. I'll heal him and all that stuff. They weren't just, you know, the, Jesus just doing these random acts of kindness. These were actually signs that pointed to something. And what we're going to see is they specifically pointed to Jesus' identity. And so as we're going to see, John, as he writes his book, he, he doesn't want us to become enamored with the miracles, he wants us to become enamored with the person who performed them. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to look at the very first sign that Jesus did. And uh, most of us have heard of this sign. Even if you're not a Christian, you have heard of this sign. So here's the first sign that Jesus did. Jesus, the first sign is turning water into wine. Yeah, some of that's your favorite sign right there. You're like, man, I love that. I pray for that all the time. That's right. Turning water into wine. And so we're going to rewind back to John chapter 2 as uh, John tells us this story. Here's what he says. He says, on the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Now, Cana was this really small village about three to four miles uh, from where Jesus grew up in, in Nazareth. And so probably the, the people that were involved in this wedding uh, they were probably a, a family that were close friends with Jesus' family. And so it says, Jesus' mother was there. Now, as we're going to see later, that Mary was actually involved, or probably involved, in the, in the catering committee, the hosting committee uh, of this wedding. And so she has a prominent part and place in this whole thing. And Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. And so John wants us to know, hey, what's about to happen, what you're about to read, I was actually there for this. Now, here's the thing. Weddings are big deals, and I think we know this for the most part. I mean, think about all that goes into a planning of a wedding. Uh, you have all the planning, and then it's expensive, and then you got other family involved, which always seems to make it stressful, you know, when other family are involved. But back then, not only was it a big deal, it was much worse when it came to the stress thing. Because weddings back then would often last an entire week. Imagine that, a wedding lasts an entire week. Uh, and then uh, they, they, would, uh, they were very expensive and... Um, 
when people in the community, especially if it was a smaller community like this, they would probably take off work for the entire week so they could be there for the entire wedding. And so weddings are a big deal. Uh, based on what I do and because of what I do, I've had the, the privilege of performing many ceremonies. And I've got to be honest with you, I'm a nervous wreck every time I do one. Because I, here's I know, the bride has dreamed about this day, you know, and someone has mortgaged their house to pay for it, most likely. And uh, everything's on video, and, uh, which means that they're going to watch this thing forever, you know. So I am always nervous about just screwing up, you know. Uh, there was one time I was doing this wedding. And usually at the beginning, I'll, uh, I'll just set the tone, saying a couple things, you know, stuff. And I'll often say, uh, hey, what we do here has eternal significance attached to it. Well, this one time I'm, I'm doing it and I say, hey, what we do here has eternal consequences attached to it, you know? <laughs> He's going, are you sentencing me to hell with this whole thing? I mean, what's going on, you know? Uh, there, was this, there was this other time I was doing this wedding and um, I, I called the, the groom by, by the wrong name. And not just any wrong name, his bride's ex-husband's name. And so then I tried to cover it up, you know, and, uh, and then, which only made it worse. And so I'm just, I mean, I still feel bad every, every time I see this couple. But, you know, the reality is, is that, you know, weddings are such a big deal. And I'm always nervous about them uh, because they're such a big deal. And back then, it was the same thing. I mean, just, just this picture in this context, this is a big deal that, that's going on here. And then so uh, John continues and says, hey, when the wine was gone. Now, this isn't, well, you know, they ran out of punch or they ran out of cake. This was beyond embarrassing for them. You see, in, in, in the first century, Middle Eastern culture was honor-based. And so it was especially honor-based when you look at the family unit uh, as well. And so when they would do things like this for the community, I mean, their honor was on the line here. And so when they ran out of wine, this wasn't, you know, it uh, wasn't the family going, man, those lushes drank more than, you know, they should have and all that stuff. You know, this wasn't that. This was, I mean, they, they were filled with so much shame here. And there weren't convenience stores or anything like that where, where they could turn to. And so it says, hey, Jesus's mother, and remember, Jesus's mother, she's on the, the catering committee here. And so she's got some say in this whole thing. She said to Jesus, well, they don't have any more wine. Which John doesn't tell us this, but for some reason, Mary knew that when crisis hit, she could go to Jesus. Which, as I'm reading this, I was kind of thinking about this. I was thinking, what would it be like, and what would it have been like to grow up with Jesus, you know? And, you know, having Mary, and Mary could go, hey, Jesus, you know, your room's a mess, clean your room. He just went, done. You know, unload the dishwasher. I mean, what would that kind of been like? You know, just kind of cool. But whatever it is, that for some reason, uh, Mary knew that when crisis hit, she could turn to Jesus. So here's how Jesus responds. Woman. <laughs> just going to let that hang for a little bit, you know? <laughs> now, can you imagine saying that to your mom? You know, woman, woman, you know? Now, here's the thing. That, that sounds offensive. And I know what some of you guys are thinking. I'm going to try that at home and say I was quoting Jesus. You know, I know what you're saying. Don't do it. That sounds offensive, but it's actually not offensive. Uh, back then, that was actually a term of affection. And so it would have been like, it would have been the equivalent of Jesus saying, my lady, uh, my lady rather than mom. And so it was kind of a formal affectionate sort of greeting because he's in a formal setting. And so he says, woman, which every time I read, I have to say that that way for some reason. I don't know why. <laughs> There'll be no women here next week because of it, but I mean, but anyways, so why do you, why do you involve me? Literally, what business is this of mine? 
Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. In other words, I've come to save the world, not weddings. But Mary, Mary, she can ask Jesus to do things because she's his mom. And then here's, here's how Mary replied. I love this. Mary just goes, okay, I'm going to ignore whatever you just said there because uh, I don't really understand. And son, you often say things that I don't understand. So she just ignores him and she looks at the servants. Hey, just do whatever he tells you to do. Hey, listen, I don't know what he's going to say. And uh, it's probably going to be crazy, but listen, just do it. And then she just walks off. <laughs> and then John tells us what happened right after that. It says, nearby stood uh, six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. Now, this is the equivalent of 120 to 180 gallons of wine. It's why you want Jesus at one of your parties, if you know what I mean, you know? <laughs> Now, the, these jars that were used for ceremonial washing, uh, part, they were used for ceremonial. Part of the Jewish law would be you would have to wash yourself before certain activities. You would have to wash yourself before you ate. Uh, you'd have to wash yourself before even attending a worship service. But something significant is happening here that I don't want you to miss. You see, those stone jars represented the Old Covenant those stone jars represented the sacrificial system that came down for Moses. And so what is happening here is that Jesus came to replace the old with something new. That the old was coming to an end and something new was coming. And so what, what, what Jesus is doing here is there's kind of all this stuff going on in the background. And as, as this is kind of all going on, there's all this foreshadowing that's taking place. Now, a few years later... Jesus would stand up with a cup of wine and he would say, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins for a new covenant. And then here's what Jesus replies. He said, hey, fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he took them and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. Now the master of the banquet would be like the equivalent of the head waiter. And so this was the person that determined uh, what got served, when, and who got served first. But they did, uh, they did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine, which is interesting. John never tells us uh, when this actually happened. And he says, he did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew, which is interesting. This is a, this is a miracle that Jesus, Jesus did that wasn't really that public, the servants are the only one who witnessed this one. It says, then he called to the bridegroom, he, he, then he called the bridegroom aside, said, everyone brings out the choice wine first and then the cheaper wine after the guests have had too much to drink. And so he pulls the groom aside, he says, listen, dude, uh, we know how this rolls. Everybody takes the best wine first and the most expensive wine. And then when everybody's had too much to drink, because they don't care what things taste like that after that, you know, uh, then we roll out the cheaper stuff, but you've done it the opposite way. He says, but you have saved the best till now. And so the original choice wine was the old that was a setup for the coming of the new and better wine, just as, as we'll see later. As we go through series, the, the old covenant, was the setup for the coming of a new covenant. And so Jesus came, and Jesus uses, he creates all this illusion at this wedding, and he says something better has come, that the old is being replaced with something brand new. And Jesus is the very best 
that is yet to come. And so this was much more than a miracle. This was a sign that pointed to something. And then John closes with this. He just says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory and his disciples placed their trust in him. And so what I want to do to kind of with my remaining time is I want to just pull two points of application from this first sign of Jesus turning water into wine, which rhymes as I just kind of take that out like that. That's kind of cool. So two signs, uh, two practical things that we can pull out from Jesus' first sign. Here's the first practical application point is this. I want you to go home, fill up a gallon of water and pray for it to turn into wine. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. Some of you are like, I will. I'll do that. I'll do it. Have at it. We'll see you in about a month. All right, here's, here's the first application point. You know, belief is based on evidence. Why did Jesus' disciples come to believe in him? Because he gathered them in, in a corner and said, all right, guys, here's the deal. I want you to believe in me because I'm Jesus. And so because of that, you believe me. That's not what happened. No. Why did they believe? The reason they believed is because there was reason to believe. You know, belief wasn't based on a feeling Belief, belief wasn't based on a hope. It wasn't like, well, maybe and hopefully and all that stuff. No, they had enough evidence to make a decision, to make a decision to follow Jesus. And so what we see right here from the very outset is John establishes a paradigm. And this paradigm is no one is ever asked to believe without evidence and no one is ever asked to, to trust a source without first uh, trusting the credibility of that source. So reason, as we see here, drives belief. You know, this is why Christianity isn't a just-believe religion. You know, up front at least, no one is ever asked to just have blind faith. You see, reason drives faith. And so John says, hey, I just want to let you know, I've recorded these signs, and these signs point to Jesus being who he claimed to be, which is the very Son of God. Now, what's interesting about what John does here is he actually gives us a process for establishing belief. And uh, he, he gives us this in the miracle, and we see this throughout throughout his book. He says, what Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first, there's the sign, through which he revealed his glory. In other words, who he is. And his disciples believed in him. And so here's the process of belief that John establishes. The signs that Jesus performed signs, they pointed to who he is, and as a result, they trusted in him. This were the basis for them believing in him. And so John says, this is how it worked for us. Now back to the purpose uh, verse that he did. We see the very same pattern. We'll go back to here. Hey, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these signs, these seven, are written that you may believe. Well, John, what do you want us to believe? Well, here's what I want you to believe, that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing him, you will have life in his name. Once again, signs point to Jesus's identity, and that identity becomes the basis for, the foundation for, our belief. You see, here's what John knew, and this is why he wrote the way he did. See, John knew that belief is transferable. Let's just say that uh, I'm a credible source for you and to you. You know, we're friends and, and, uh, and all that stuff. Now, let's just say I, I went to this restaurant, and this is a great restaurant, you know, and, uh, and, and I'm like, you know, oh, man, you got to go to this restaurant. Food was great, and, and they even served blizzards there, and I wasn't Dairy Queen, you know, and uh, it's such a good thing. Hey, you need to go to this restaurant. Now, if, if, if I'm a credible source to you, uh, you are more likely to go and try that restaurant because I recommended that restaurant. 
You see, if, if belief is transferable, meaning this, if I believe in something, I'm a credible source, you are more apt to believe something because I do. And so what John does is John said, hey, we are invited to believe based on the testimony of people who were actually there. You see, reason, evidence should drive belief. And so that's, that's the first application point. Now here's the second one. The second one is this. And this is for those of, those of us who follow Jesus. Just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Just do whatever Jesus tells you to do. Hey, remember what uh, Mary said to the servants when the wine ran out? She's like, I don't have a clue what he says half the time, but just whatever he tells you to do, just do it. Doing, doing is the key to following Jesus. Let's go back to the, the process of belief again that John gives us through. Signs, identity, belief. Signs, identity, belief. That once we get to this point right here, to the belief part, and uh, we initially trust Jesus, we believe we, he said uh, exactly who he is, once we get there, that's the initial belief. However, from there, our belief needs to begin a process where we grow into that belief. In fact, John alludes to this. Uh, here's what he says back to the purpose verse. He says this. He says, hey, but these are written that you may believe initially that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And that key term there, believing, it's this process of continual believing. It's ongoing. It's something that has to grow into. In other words, when it comes to belief, our belief is either growing stronger and developing or it's growing weaker. I kind of look at it this way. I kind of look at when we, we had this initial belief, make the initial decision, uh, it's like seeds that are planted in a garden. But if we don't water and care for those seeds, they will never grow. And the way the seeds grow from a faith standpoint is by doing what Jesus tells us to do. So here's the process for, for a growing faith, and it just kind of follows what John said before. We hear, do, and grow. We hear, do, and grow. Here, we learn what, what, what Jesus says to do, and then we do. We put it into practice. Hey, we do whatever he tells us to do. And then as a result, we begin to flourish. Uh, we begin to experience more of the presence and power of Jesus in, in our life. We begin to experience more what John was talking about, life in his name. Now, here's the, challenge of all, here's the challenge of this, and we all face this challenge, and it's a daily challenge. The daily challenge is this. There are many times we don't really like what we hear, and when we don't like what we hear, then we become resistant to what to do, and then as a result, we don't grow, and, uh, and, and when we don't grow, uh, John would say, well, then we don't go to experience life in his name. Now this, like I said, we all experience this, I experience this, and here's what I've learned over the years uh, when I become resistant to it. Here, here's something I've learned that's really helped me, it's kind of helped me push through this. Uh, here, here's what I just, I go back to, almost everything that Jesus tells me to do is for my benefit. And I know it's kind of selfish and everything like that, but it's true. That my life, every time I put it into practice, always gets better because of it. And so will yours. For example, he tells us to forgive. Uh, a couple months ago, I got a phone call from another pastor in the area. We had never spoken before, and uh, so we're talking on the phone, having this conversation. And then I floated out this question to him, which uh, I'm not sure why he didn't really care for my question. 
And uh, as a result, he, uh, he kind of shot back at me and said some things that I didn't really care for. So things got a little bit of tense uh, on the phone, which I know what you're thinking. Man, I would love to have been on that phone call seeing two pastors going at it like that. Yeah, it was good. It was really good. Uh, and, and so we're kind of having this very tense conversation, you know, and uh, I get off the phone and I'm steaming mad at this cat. I mean, I'm steaming mad. And uh, so a couple weeks go by. And, uh, and I'm reading a passage about forgiveness and all that stuff. I'm like, gosh darn it. You know, I need to forgive this guy. I need to forgive this guy. And so uh, I call him up and I just said, hey, listen, man, um, listen, th- our conversation, my part, I, this is on me. And uh, I, I just, I, I feel awful. Uh, I, I just want you to, I, I, I want to ask for your forgiveness and all that stuff. And, and so, you know, we ex- he exchanges forgiveness. And, and then all of a sudden, you know, we're starting to become friends. I mean, it's a great conversation and all that stuff. But the idea of forgiveness is, you know, I didn't want to ask for forgiveness. But the idea of forgiveness is, is that, you know, we think it's, oh, yeah, Jesus wants us to give someone else a get-out-of-jail-free card and all that stuff. But the reality is someone's in jail when we're in that situation, but it's not the other person. It was me. And forgiveness is the only thing that gets me out of jail. You know, we're, he, we're, we're encouraged to serve. We're commanded to serve. And uh, it's like, well, I don't have time to, and I want to do that and all that stuff. But when we do, we realize that God's given us gifts and abilities to make a difference in this world. And here's the thing. It's difficult, but I've never regretted serving. We're we're commanded to honor God with our finances. Give, save, live. Give, save, live. Now, here's the interesting thing. When we're generous, it has a ripple effect on every area of our life. Generous people, studies show, are the happiest people around. They're less selfish. They're not caught in the cycle of stuff and more stuff and more stuff. Plus, when people are generous, they get to see and experience God's presence in the area of their finances. And those are just three examples. I could give you example after example after example in every area of our life. Now, doing whatever Jesus tells us to do, it's not always that easy. In fact, oftentimes it's difficult if we wrestle with tension and doubt and all that stuff. But when we do what he's, he's told us to do, the seed of our faith grows more. And as a result, we experience more of what John says, more of life in his name. And when we experience that, our life is always better. So what's your next step as we kind of kick this thing off? What is your next step? You know, for some of you, your next step is, it, it's a belief thing. You're here and you're like, yeah, I just can't buy into this stuff and I don't believe this, I don't believe that and all that stuff. Listen, if, if that's you, you just need to know this. No one is ever asking you to believe or asked to believe without evidence. And so what I want to encourage you to do, journey with us through this series as we look at these signs and just follow this process of belief that, that, that John has laid out. Now, if, if that's you, uh, it was talked about earlier, this whole uh, reading plan going up to Easter for Lent and all that stuff. Maybe for you, you're like, nah, I'm just not going to do that. Maybe for you, you should read through the book of John and uh, go through these signs with us. If that's you, go on our website. We have a bunch of reading plans for the book of John and uh, maybe that's where you need to live for the next couple of weeks. Now, for others of you, maybe this is your next step. You have a do whatever Jesus tells you to do step that you need to take in your life. And here's the thing. I don't even to tell you what it is. You already know what it is. Because every time it's brought up, you just kind of ignore it or explain it away. Listen, he wants what's best for you. And you will never experience the full work of God in your life until you submit to his will for your life. What is that step? What is it that you just know in your soul that he is asking you to do. Now, as we go through the next six weeks, uh, as we journey through these six signs, my hope and prayer for us is, is that no matter where you are in your faith journey, that you'll take some steps, you'll take some steps, you'll take some steps. 
And as a result, you will experience more of what John's telling us, this beautiful thing called life in his name, life with the divine. Now, I was thinking a, a great way to kind of kick off week one and a way to respond to week one is because of the backdrop of this miracle of turning water into wine, that we would take communion together as our way of responding today. And so on my right, on your left, are some elements. If you want to grab those, no Creek, I want you to do the same thing. Pass those down, and then as, as you pass those down, would you just hold, hold the elements for me? Now, if you're here and you're like, Mark, I don't feel real comfortable taking this. Listen, that's okay. Let it pass you by and just, just take in this moment uh, with us. You know, the process of making wine has not changed in the past couple thousand years. You know, after the grapes are harvested, uh, then they go through a process where the, the grapes are crushed. And back in Bible times, what they would do to crush the grapes is that uh, they would get three or four people barefoot, and then they would step on the, break, uh, on the grapes because they were, they were trying to break the skin of the grapes because when, when the skin would be broken, then the juice would flow out uh, from the grapes, and eventually it would turn into wine. In the book of Isaiah, uh, Isaiah the prophet, uh, 700 years before Jesus came onto the scene, talking about the Messiah to come, he said this. He said, he was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. This imagery right here became the symbol for communion. That on the night before Jesus was to get his, give his life, he took some bread, he took some juice, and he said, this, bre this bread represents my body, which is to be crushed for you. And then he said, this cup of wine represents my blood, which will flow out of me for the forgiveness of your sins and for a new covenant. And so on the top is a cracker, which represents Jesus' body. Would you just take a moment, and then would you just take that? And then when you're done with that, on the bottom is some juice. This represents blood of Jesus. Would you then take that? And then when you're done, just spend a couple quiet moments at your seat and uh, just, just begin praying about, hey, what's my next step? Or, hey, God, uh, I want to believe, help my unbelief. Just take a couple moments to do that. And Father, um, thank you for just the powerful symbolism of uh, when Jesus turned that water into wine, what all that connects to, uh, not only back then, but today. And uh, we're reminded of a brand new covenant that you made through your son that we still get to experience the benefits of uh, today. Father, thank you for that. God, uh, for those who, there's a next step, there's a do whatever you, you're, you're telling us to do step. God, I pray that they would have the courage to do that. And what's great is in, in doing so, uh, you'll show up because you always show up because you're so good and you're so faithful. And God, for those of us that are here or watching, listening, going like, I just don't have the faith thing yet, God. Uh, uh, we pray on their behalf. Uh, make yourself known, God. Make yourself known to them because what's great is you love the journey and we thank you for it. Father, thank you for the great city, great community that you've called us to be a part of, uh, that in the middle of darkness, you are light and uh, us, your people, 
are called to be light. So God, thank you for inviting us into uh, the hurt and the pain uh, because we know in it that's where you are and we thank you for it. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to the Rich Community Churches podcast. If you live in Southeast Wisconsin, we'd love to host you at one of our weekend services. For directions, service times, and more about our kids' and students' environments, visit us at theridgecc.com. That's theridgecc.com.